He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that, this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes and all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went, up, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you. Who gets to go to heaven? That's a basic and frankly important question, right? Who goes to heaven? How do you get to heaven? Usually what we mean by that is how do you experience the salvation that God offers? And we need to be careful because as many have pointed out, uh, the ultimate hope of Christians is not merely heaven, if you conceive of that as some disembodied harps in the clouds sort of state of existence. Our hope is the new heavens and the new earth, a new physical world God created, the resurrection of the body, the dead raised incorruptible to live as physical beings in a physical new world that God has made. Typically today, Christians, though, use phrases like going to heaven or getting saved, and I don't want to be pedantic about the words we, well, let's all face it, I do want to be pedantic about the words we use, we all know that, but I'm not gonna. Uh, salvation and heaven are biblical words, but we should recognize that the Bible tends to use other words, other concepts. Jesus, in the text that Lenore just read for us, speaks of being justified and of entering the kingdom, the kingdom of God. You can think of those as more precise terms for the idea of being saved or going to heaven. They tell us more precisely what salvation means, how salvation happens. Just a little bit about these concepts. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It's what we call a forensic concept. Uh, forensic, don't think like CSI. Forensic just means in this case that it's God's legal declaration. It is a verdict that God pronounces as judge over his people. If someone is justified, it means that person is declared righteous in the eyes of the divine court. So the question is, how do we receive such a verdict? And what does it mean to enter the kingdom? The kingdom of God is the great hope and expectation of all scripture going back through the storyline of the Old Testament. We can define it as God's saving rule that his people were, were anticipating 
or God's people dwelling in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Remember Adam, the first human, rejected God's rule as a consequence. He was banished from God's place of blessing and forced to live under the curse, separate from God because of his sin. And we've all been living in that same state of rebellion and separation and curse. So to enter the kingdom of God is not just to adopt a new fantastic point of view. The kingdom of God is a whole new world promised to us. It is life restored to what it is meant to be without sin or suffering or death. Believers begin to experience that now in submission to God's rule and in the Spirit's transforming presence in our lives and in our life together. But we also look forward to the fulfillment of the kingdom when the king returns. As Revelation says, the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. New heavens and the new earth. A wondrous place for you and me. Well, if you've been worshiping with us for a while, we have been going through the book of Luke together. We are just a chapter away from the end of a long section you could call the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus has been walking toward Jerusalem, walking ultimately the long road that will lead him to the cross. On that journey, he has had much to say about the coming kingdom, about what it takes to be ready for his return, about what it means for the church to wait for his return. Last week's text ended on this question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, in the rest of chapter 18 and the first part of chapter 19, really the rest of this long section that we've been in, we see several illustrations of what that faith looks like. You can think of them as illustrations of what Jesus is looking for what the Son of Man is looking for when he returns. Some are real-life people that Jesus met. Uh, some are parables. So we see it this morning in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in the real-life little children that were brought to Jesus in the following weeks, we'll meet a rich ruler, a blind beggar, and another tax collector named Zacchaeus. Each of these will help us form a clearer picture of what the Son of Man will be looking for when he returns. To put it another way, what is faith? So today we'll look at some contrasts between the Pharisee and the parable and then both the tax collector and the little children, infants even, that were being brought to Jesus. So before we do that, a few things about these groups of people uh, you should know uh, because they were seen in the days of Jesus differently than we might see them today. When we use the word Pharisee today, what do we usually mean? We mean a self-righteous jerk most of the time, right? A hypocrite. Because that's how Jesus often describes them in his interactions with them. Because many of them were. Uh, a few of them were more, more sympathetic, like Nicodemus. But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were well-respected. They were considered salt of the earth, model Jewish citizens. They were sort of the religious uh, party of the people. They took the Bible seriously. They loved their nation. They were devoutly religious. By contrast, the tax collectors were generally despised, and maybe we can understand that a little bit better as April draws near. But tax collectors in Jesus' day were hated 
not just because they took your money, but because they took money for the foreign, oppressive Roman government, and because they typically took more taxes than you actually owed, so they could pocket the extra, so they were corrupt. When Jesus says then that two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, people would have heard one was a great guy and the other was a corrupt bureaucrat. We'll get to the children, they come up later in the text, but I'll mention now, uh, they didn't have quite the honored place in society, uh, even in religious life, that they do today. I mean, today, churches invest a good deal of time and resources into ministering to children, and I'm glad we do. We built a whole wing of our building over there is dedicated to kids' ministry. Back then, kids were a waste of the rabbi's time. He's a serious Bible teacher, Kids' ministry is beneath him to ask him to essentially serve in the nursery. Um, he's, too, he's too important to serve in the nursery, right? But as we will see, Jesus turns this thinking on its head. The kingdom is not for those who are worthy of it. None of us is worthy. We do not enter the kingdom of God. We do not enter by our own merit. We enter by faith. So the burden of today's message is to remind us all, myself included, what it means to enter by faith alone. Today's text shows us three contrasts between the self-righteousness of the Pharisee, trusting in himself, and the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ Jesus, trusting in his finished work. Two of the contrasts will have to do with character. Uh, self-righteousness, if you want to know the outline ahead of time, it's comparative and it is performative comparative and performative. The other contrast has to do with location. Where is our righteousness found? Well, let's look at the first thing I mentioned there. The Pharisee's righteousness is comparative. He seeks to establish his righteousness by comparing himself to others. We see that in verse 11. He prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, consider that list that he gave for a moment here. It's kind of amusing. Uh, I don't do extortion. I don't force people to give me their money. I'm not unjust, which probably means cheating people out of their money, uh, so trickery instead of force. I don't do that either. I don't swindle people. And I don't do adultery. Somebody give me a medal. You know, imagine being on a pastoral search committee and somebody submitted a resume to this search with those bullet points on his resume. Call me to be your pastor because I have successfully resisted the temptation to embezzle church funds. I have achieved significant lack of adultery in the course of my ministry. Well, that one, let's put that right at the top of the stack, right? I mean, that's the bare minimum of being a decent human being, right? That's, that's the thing about comparison. You know, there's always someone worse that you can compare yourself to, hopefully, right? When you bomb a test, it's nice to have somebody in that class that got a worse grade than you, and you don't feel quite so bad about yourself, right? It's like when two people are being chased by a bear, and you think, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun the guy next to me, right? Maybe that's how God's judgment is like. But it doesn't work like that when it comes to the righteousness, judgment of God. The Bible is clear that this bear is coming for everybody. But compare the Pharisee, then, to the tax collector. What does the tax collector pray? We'll skip ahead a little bit. Or what is his attitude? 
Does he compare himself to others? No, he speaks of himself objectively. He compares himself only to God's standard. This is how he assesses himself. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I am a sinner. I have sinned. I do sin. This isn't about what anyone else has done or hasn't done. This is between me and God. Before God, I am a sinner. That's his attitude. What about you? Have you considered that you are accountable to your God, your judge, your creator, for your own attitudes and actions? That comparison, that blame shifting, they're not going to work. Uh, even for, before a human judge, I'm going to assume here that other people did worse crimes is not a valid defense, right? Thank you. Confirmation over there. Uh, I'm a good person. I try to be nice. God's judgment is just for the really bad people, like dictators and abusers and murderers and Methodists. No, sorry. <laughs> we got past the security system. Nothing against Methodists this morning. You and I are sinners. You and I have rebelled against God's law. We have failed to love God with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. Other people's sins are irrelevant. So if you're hoping God will be so busy judging other people that he'll ignore or just not notice your sin, you're in for a rude awakening when he returns. Now, it may be worse for some than others on Judgment Day. I think the Bible does teach that. But every sin is going to be dealt with. The tax collector gets it. Faith gets it. Faith doesn't blame shift. Faith doesn't compare. Faith recognizes our desperate state of need before God, that we have nothing in ourselves to plead. Which foreshadows our next point. We see in this Pharisee that his self-righteousness is performative. Going back to his prayer in verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The important thing to know about both of those practices is that the Old Testament law did not command or commend even either of those practices. They weren't necessarily wrong, but look at fasting. Fasting was, in the Old Testament law, required on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which was once a year. The Pharisees later on adopted this practice of fasting twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. They fasted as a sort of an intercession for their nation as a whole. And then look at giving tithes. Uh, that was required in various ways by the law. We won't get into the details. But the Pharisee says he tithes, gives tithes of all that I get or all that I acquire. That likely includes not just all my income, but all the things that I purchase. So if you, you think of it as like a tithed version of like a, it's like a sales tithe, I guess, a sales tax almost. Uh, so way above and beyond what would have been required. And, and again, we know Pharisees often did, many Pharisees adopted this practice of tithing, giving a tenth of the meals that they would eat even. So in both fasting and in tithing, the Pharisee went above and beyond what God had asked him to do. Rather than attending to the, what God actually required, he followed arbitrary, man-made displays of righteousness. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that I were to tell my kids to clean their rooms. And I give them some time, maybe four hours later, I go and look and see that their rooms are still a mess. But they say, beaming with pride, 
look how tidy and fastidious we are because we have ironed our bed sheets and our pillowcases. They're nice and smooth. It's great. Well, who cares, right? I mean, you came up with some pointless little, they haven't done this, by the way, but you came up with some pointless little task that I guess you wanted to do that doesn't make up for not addressing the things that I actually asked you to do. There's still Legos all over the floor. There's dirty laundry hanging from the ceiling fan, Pop-Tarts ground in the car carpet. I just shot myself in the foot. They're going to start hanging laundry from the ceiling fan, aren't they? That's great. Do not hang your laundry from the ceiling fan. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We have failed to do those things in thought and word and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. And you cannot cover up that fact by making up and adhering to some extra strict standard of your own, no matter how self-sacrificial those practices may be, like fasting twice a week and extra tithing certainly was self-sacrificial. And yet we still try. In various ways, we put on a show, we engage in performative acts of self-righteousness, maybe hoping others will see, or maybe just for ourselves, hoping God will see for sake of our own consciences. Maybe we see other people doing that, and our performative righteousness responds by uh, taking pride in how we never go above and beyond, not like those legalists. You might see that this come up in a few weeks as Lent approaches might find yourself saying, I'm a super-Christian because I'm giving something up for Lent. Or uh, you could find yourself saying, I'm a super-Christian because I don't give anything up for Lent, like those, you know, wannabe Catholics. I am a Protestant, semper reformanda, you know. The tax collector shows us the opposite attitude. He is really the opposite of performative. He stands far off. He won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's lowering his head hanging his head, lowering his eyes. He beats his breast, which could be done in a performative way, but for him, it's clear that it's a genuine expression of grief over his sin. He does not try to hide from God. He goes up to the temple and he prays, so he does come before God, but his posture is fundamentally humble, and that is Jesus' assessment and his summary. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector is not performing before God. He's not trying to exalt himself by impressing anyone, certainly not God. Once again, he shows us a sober assessment of who he is before God. There's no attempt to deflect God's judgment by means of comparison or performance. Once again, the question is, what about you? When you consider God's judgment, what plea do you plan to make? Why should he let you enter into the kingdom? Because of a list of things that you've done? A list of things you haven't done? All the stuff on your righteousness resume, all the bullet points that make you stand out from the crowd? Not one of those bullet points can cover the fact that you and I have broken the law of God, failed to love God with our whole heart, failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We begin to see the answer, what should our plea be, as we look to the final contrast here. And that, as I said, is location, location, location. Where do we look for our righteousness? This is one aspect of the Pharisees' self-righteousness 
that may surprise you, and we see it in the very first three, that's four, four words that he speaks. God, I thank you. He gives God credit. He acknowledges that the personal righteousness that he's looking to, that he's trusting in, he acknowledges that it's God's gift. The reason I'm not an extortionist or an adulterer, God's work. The reason I do this, call it varsity level fasting and tithing, that's God's work, God's gift. He gives, gives God the credit. Your work, God. This is crucial for us to understand. There are people in the world, some of them even claiming to be followers of the Reformation, who smuggle faith, who smuggle works into faith, smuggle personal righteousness into the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. Silver-tongued people who speak in sophisticated and convoluted words what amounts to the view that your own good works, your own personal righteousness, are what get you into the kingdom of God. And you might say, if you pick up on what they're laying down, isn't that works righteousness? No, they protest. It's not works righteousness because it's God's work. God in his grace gives you the personal righteousness you need to become worthy in yourself to enter the kingdom. God infuses the righteousness of Christ into you so that you become righteous. And then he proclaims you're righteous. See, it's ultimately God's work. Now, in the weeks that follow we will see that good works are not optional in the Christian life, that saving faith is accompanied by transformation, by fruit of the Spirit, by good works. But what the parable here of the Pharisee and the tax collector shows us is that whatever transformation we experience in this life even, whatever good works God has prepared for us to walk in, these are not the ground of our salvation, not the ground of our justification before God. They are not the source of our righteousness before God. It is true, and we must acknowledge they are God's work in us, but they are the fruit, the result, the benefit of our salvation, not the cause of it. They are evidence of faith, not its essence. They are a benefit of salvation, not the means of salvation. I used the word location earlier, and what I mean is this. The Pharisee is looking for the ground of righteousness in himself, in his life, in his good works, in his deeds. Even though those good works come from God, that is still self-righteousness, works righteousness. He is still not justified, as Christ says himself. The tax collector, on the other hand, pleads nothing in himself. He's a sinner. There is nothing to plead in himself. So what is his plea? What does he say? God, be merciful to me. That's his plea. The mercy of God. This is one of those cases, by the way, where there's more in the Greek texts than meets the eye uh, of what we can see in an English translation. The Greek word that's normally translated as mercy isn't used here. The, the tax collector uh, uses the verb hilaskomai, which is related to the verb, it's the verb form of the word uh, hilasterion, which means propitiation, propitiation. 
And I get why the translators didn't use that word, because they want to use words that most people who just pick up the, their, their Bible translation might know. But a propitiation, you may be aware, is an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that turns aside God's wrath so that we instead experience his favor. So the idea was, as you're going to worship whatever God you worship, you offer a sacrifice to turn aside his wrath, make him favorable, propitious toward you, means favorable to you. What's interesting about the tax collector is he brings nothing with him and simply asks God to do this work of propitiation. He's asking God to provide the atoning sacrifice for his sin, to be favorable to him. He doesn't say in this parable, we don't get details of how or why God might be able to do this, how this is possible, but he looks to God to provide what is required for his justification. Jesus teaches you and me to have the same attitude and he teaches us the same thing again in the situation with the little children here. Little children were coming to him. People bring even infants to Jesus. The disciples rebuke them. Jesus is too important for, again, lowly nursery service, right? But Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. Babies matter to Jesus, so they need to matter to us as well. That should be a no-brainer on one level. We're all made in the image of God, right? matter how small. The Old Testament teaches us this much, that uh, all human beings made in the image of God are worthy of his care and protection, even from before birth. But there's another reason here, and that is that we need to enter the kingdom of God like little children. And, and more than that, there is no other way to enter the kingdom of God. If you don't enter like a little child, you're not getting in. So what does it mean to enter like a little child? Given the context, I think it means we enter the kingdom in abject, humble, total dependence on God. Think about your first year of life for a moment. If you're here and you have successfully made it through your first year of life on this earth, congratulations. Except not really congratulations because you didn't do anything. Right? You didn't do anything to contribute to your survival in your first year of life. You didn't feed yourself. You didn't burp yourself. You didn't change yourself or clean yourself. You did nothing. You were completely dependent on those who cared for you. The only thing that you possibly could say that you did is what? What did you do? I was really hoping that uh, one of the babies here would, would just be a mensch, help me out here and, and do it. But alas... What did you do? You cried, right? Cry for help, cry for food, cry for sleep, cry for comfort, cry in pain. That's all we contribute to entering the kingdom. We cry out for what we don't have and only God can give us. That is the only way to enter into the kingdom. We contribute nothing. We bring nothing to the table no list of sins you have not done, no list of virtues you pursue, no list of those you are not like. Not even your own superior understanding of grace alone. Your ability to explain the work of Christ doesn't save you. The work of Christ saves you. God justifies the ungodly, Paul tells us in Romans. 
God only justifies the ungodly, I believe is the point he's getting at. Only the empty hand can receive. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Even when Christ returns, and we are finally, once and for all, free from guilt and sin and death, when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died to so- my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Or as another hymn writer said, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Even when we stand before the throne, faultless, we are dressed in his righteousness alone. So it's about location. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only in Christ. Our only hope in life and death is not what we have done, nor what other sinners have done, not even what God has done in us, but only what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So do not compare yourself to others, hoping God will judge their sin and forget about yours. Cling to Christ, because on the cross, God has laid the sins of his people on Jesus. He has judged our sins in Jesus and now promises to remember our sins no more. Not because he looks on those other people who have sinned worse than you have, but because he looks on the cross of Christ. And do not trust in your performance, hoping because you've gone above and beyond in some area, um, beyond what God has required, or made some personal sacrifices, God will overlook your sin and your pride. Instead, cling to Christ. He went above and beyond what we deserve. The Lord of glory took on human flesh, became the man of sorrows. He perfectly kept all that God's law actually required. Beyond that, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to fulfill the sacrifice, the propitiation, the atonement that God required. He sacrificed himself so that God not only forgives the sins of his people, but justifies us, declares us fully righteous in Christ, because we are united with Christ. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, gift of God, that depends on faith. Let's pray. Father, we gathered before you, and you know each and every heart, inside and out, better than we do ourselves. You know our sins and our transgressions, our iniquity, you know our guilt and our shame better than we do ourselves. We do confess to you that we are sinners. Many of us may identify with the Pharisee. Many of us may identify with the tax collector this morning. The answer 
either is the gospel, whether we find ourselves convicted of our self-righteousness or whether we, like the tax collector, have come this morning overwhelmed with a sense of our guilt and shame. Show us how the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to our deepest needs. I pray for those this morning who find in their hearts a repentant Pharisee or a Pharisee struggling to repent. We confess that we are prone to self-righteousness, to efforts at self-justification, that in those efforts we tear others down, compare ourselves to others, puff up our own egos as we think about things that we do that other people don't, things that other people don't do that we do, other pe- uh, things other people do that we don't do. We know this attitude. We know where it leads. We've been down this road many times. We know it ends up robbing us of our joy. We are so obsessed with ourselves, but more than that, we rob you of your glory. We are obsessed with ourselves and have taken our eyes off the glory of God revealed in the cross of Christ. Would you convict us of our sins? Remind us that yes, we have broken your law and that our efforts to justify ourselves only add to our transgressions, only dig the hole deeper. Would you smash the idols of our hearts those things by which we try to self-justify. Help us to cling to Christ, to Christ alone, that we might honor you, glorify your name, and know the joy once again, be restored to the joy of your salvation, rather than continuing on this treadmill effort of self-righteousness, of comparison, to know the freedom that comes in Christ Jesus. I pray for anyone who has come this morning and uh, finds in their heart a tax collector, maybe repentant, maybe just wallowing in in self-pity and fear, shame crushed under the weight of sin and guilt. That is a good thing for us to be convicted of our sin, but would you grant us assurance through your word, through the Lord's Supper that we're about to partake of, through the power of your Holy Spirit, grant us this gift of assurance of sins forgiven, of righteousness freely given in Christ Jesus that blessed freedom that comes with knowing that no sin we've done is so great that cannot be completely washed away by the blood of Christ with no trace remaining. Remind us of the promise of the gospel that simply by trusting, by resting in what Christ has done, we are justified now righteous in your sight, that you do not call us sinners, you do not see us as sinners, 
but you see us in your Son. You look on him and pardon us. Transform us, revive us, set our hearts ablaze for the glory of the gospel. Help us to be as little children once more, simply crying out to our Father, knowing that he will give us the grace and mercy that we need. Be glorified, Lord, as we turn our hearts to you and trust in only what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. To him be the glory. And in his name we pray. Amen.